Hey y'all, it's Elizabeth Sharkey here with episode 4 of the podcast, It Started with the Zoo, Animal Ethics for the Average Person. This episode is entitled PETA Meet and Greet. Now, why is this podcast going to be a meet and greet? It's a meet and greet because we're going to get to know PETA without judging her. We're going to look at facts, quotes, and what PETA stands for and the kind of work they do. While you might already have some preconceived notions about PETA, I want you to throw all of those out the door because we're starting fresh today. Now, in my last episode, we did some analysis on PETA's particular stance on relocation programs. I was pretty critical of them on that issue, but that's not what this episode is about. I want to present PETA as unbiased as I can, and the next episode, we're going to really analyze and scrutinize their policies and actions. Let's get into the episode. Let's start with an overview of how PETA began. PETA was founded in 1980 by Ingrid Newkirk and Alex Pacheco. Before PETA existed, there were really only two things you could do if you wanted to help animals. You could volunteer at a local animal shelter, or you could donate money to an organization. Now, Newkirk and Pacheco thought these ideas, volunteering, donating money, were helping animals, but they really didn't question why we kill animals, why we eat animals, why we wear animals why we use them for laboratory testing. And they really wanted to create an organization that questioned these societal norms. Now they were inspired by Peter Singer's book called Animal Liberation, which was published back in 1975. Now, for those of you who haven't read Animal Liberation, it basically brings up the things in common between racist ideas, sexist ideas, how those views are used to discriminate against minorities and women, and they draw the comparison between those ideas and speciesism, which is the idea that we look at other animals as inferior. We look at them as objects. So the same way a racist or sexist person might look down upon a minority or a woman, someone who is speciesist, which is a hard word to say, as speciesist, they would look down on animals as inferior and therefore justifying the idea that they can eat them, they can kill them, they can mistreat them. We're going to treat animals as objects and we're just going to use them to fill our own desires. Basically, the idea that humans are superior and that leading to the exploitation of animals. PETA's founders wanted people to do more than just donate money or volunteer time. They wanted to promote a vegan diet. They wanted to promote cruelty-free shopping. They wanted to protest against these social norms. So the organization was really founded to fight against speciesism, arguing that animals have rights in proportion to their interests. 
So like a human, an animal doesn't want to experience unnecessary pain. And they should have the right to not have to endure unnecessary pain. They should be protected. PETA's earliest efforts really began with their exposure and litigation on government research laboratories, um, laboratories that used animals for testing. PETA's first case was the 1981 Silver Spring Monkey case. Basically, a psychologist named Edward Taub was working in a laboratory with monkeys. And what he did was, is he would cut their afferent ganglia, which is basically severing some nerves that make it so the brain can't really connect with limbs like arms or legs. So he would clip these nerves. The monkeys would not have use of one or more of their limbs. And what he would do is he would, let's say he cuts the right arm. He would restrain the left arm and make it so the monkey had to utilize his bad arm. And he found that the monkeys over time when, you know, in a life or death situation where they're either going to starve or they're going to move their arm to pick up a raisin, the monkeys were actually able to use their bad limbs and move them again. So crazy findings, crazy research, but obviously it took a toll on the monkeys they were in tiny cages. They were given no enrichment. A lot of them ended up attacking their bad arms because they no longer associated it as part of them. They thought it was just an odd object clinging onto them. So they would mutilate and attack their arms. And Pacheco, one of the founders of PETA, he went undercover in this lab. He took photos he gained insight, he gained evidence, and eventually he went to the police with his evidence against Edward Taub. Now, they went to court. It ended up being two trials. In the first, Taub was found guilty of six counts of animal cruelty for failing to provide veterinary care to the animals who had mutilated themselves. And he was acquitted of 11 charges against him. Taub ended up having a $3,000 fine. Now, in the second trial, Taub was found to be acquitted of his five convictions. And his sixth conviction was set aside on the appeal because the court ruled that Maryland's prevention of cruelty to animals the laws against that didn't apply to federally funded laboratories. So while PETA brought a lot of attention to this issue, which then went on to kickstart a bunch of legislation about animal laboratories and USDA standards, Edward Taub was really just fined for what had happened. Now there is back and forth about how bad really the conditions were in this lab. 
Edward Taub actually went on vacation for a couple weeks and he says he was set up because his workers and Alex Pacheco weren't cleaning the cages for the animals when he wasn't there. And he says that Alex Pacheco really set him up and made the standards seem a lot worse than they actually were. So there's some back and forth there. Edward Taub received death threats. This was very public. Um, and he had a lot of trouble continuing research. But after about five years after the case, he finally got a research grant with the University of Alabama. And he actually went on to develop a new form of therapy for stroke victims. It was based on the concept of neuroplasticity, which is the idea that our brains can rewire and find new pathways when the original pathway is no longer available. So for example, if you have a stroke and you have brain damage, you might have paralyzed limbs. And his new therapy helped stroke victims with paralyzed limbs regain use of their limbs. And the American Stroke Association really praised him and they said that he was at the forefront of a revolution for helping stroke survivors. So he went on to do very interesting research, very important research, and it seems similar to or building off of the research he did with the Silver Spring Monkeys. So it's interesting to look at that. Now, while PETA got their start with laboratory court cases, exposing laboratories, they really expanded into a lot of other industries. Meat industry, cosmetics, pharmaceuticals, they really wanted better treatment of animals all around. So for example, there was an undercover investigation of a pig farm in North Carolina where it was found that pigs were being abused and skinned alive. Another one was an undercover investigation of a Florida exotic animal training school where big cats were being beaten with axes. Another one was that a California furrier was charged with cruelty to animals when a PETA investigator found them electrocuting chinchillas by clipping wires to the animal's genitals, which caused the animals to experience heart attack-like pains while they were still conscious. PETA has done a lot of great work exposing horrific animal conditions that would otherwise still be, you know, industry secrets, not knowledge for the general public. So they have done a really great job doing undercover work. If you go to PETA's website, which you can do, it's just PETA.org, you can Google it very quickly. They kind of have a page that says all the ideas they stand for. And they break it into, I think it's six categories. That categories are experimentation, food, clothing, entertainment, companion animals, and wildlife. So those are kind of the big ideas, the large concepts that PETA has that they list their stances on. And then those categories obviously can break down into smaller categories that can be 
even further dissected into very specific policy. These PETA stances on these six categories are on the website, but I'm going to go through and just quickly summarize what PETA has to say about them. Starting with the first category, we have experimentation. PETA writes that more than 100 million animals suffer and die in the U.S. every year in cruel chemical, drug, food, and cosmetic tests, as well as in medical training exercises and curiosity-driven medical experiments at universities. Animals also suffer and die in classroom biology experiments and dissections. Examples of animal tests include forcing mice and rats to inhale toxic fumes, force-feeding dogs pesticides, and applying corrosive chemicals into rabbits' sensitive eyes. Even if a product harms animals, it can still be marketed to consumers. Moving on to category two, we have food. Peter writes that on today's farms, animals used for food are crammed by the thousands into filthy windowless sheds or stuffed into wire cages, metal crates, and other torturous devices. Billions of fish, along with non-target animals, including sharks, sea turtles, birds, seals, and whales are caught every year by commercial fishing industries. Animals used for food will never raise their families, root around in the soil, build nests, or do anything else that's natural and important to them. Most won't feel the warmth of the sun on their backs or breathe fresh air until the day they are loaded into trucks headed for slaughterhouses. PETA and our millions of supporters around the world know that animals aren't ours to use for food. They're unique, feeling individuals with their own wants and needs. Our hard-hitting campaigns and eye-opening investigations show people the reality of using animals for food. For decades, PETA's ads, articles, and bold protests have revealed the horrors that the meat and dairy industries try so hard to hide and the public can't help but take notice. Moving on to category three, we have clothing. They write that sheep are often beaten and mutilated by workers, stealing their wool and their skin for shearling. Goats are similarly abused for cashmere. All this is done in the name of fashion. No matter the type of material or where it comes from, if the process involves an animal, it involves horrific cruelty. Our advertisements and demonstrations against these bloody industries are famous for shocking the public, turning heads, and initiating action. Fur and leather items are often deliberately mislabeled. In countries where animal welfare laws are virtually non-existent, some producers have been known to kill dogs and cats for fur and leather. So if you wear animals, there's no easy way of knowing whose skin you're in. Moving on to entertainment, PETA says that animals aren't actors, spectacles to imprison and gawk at, or circus clowns. Yet thousands of elephants, bears, apes, and others are forced to perform silly, difficult tricks under the threat of physical punishment. PETA is determined to get all animals out of the entertainment business. 
are dedicated. Staff members work full-time exposing and ending animal cruelty abuse in the entertainment industry, and their work is paying off. Consider the demise of Ringley Bros Circus, for example. In addition to ending circus cruelty, these staff members work with officials to overhaul horse racing rules nationwide, spearhead hard-hitting undercover investigations and public campaigns that are crucial in turning public opinion against animal exploiting attractions, persuade travel companies to stop selling tickets to SeaWorld, and many other things. PETA has helped facilitate such transfers as in the case of Nosy the Elephant, who worked in a circus and is now loving her new home in Tennessee. Charlie, a thoroughbred horse on the brink of a fatal breakdown, was also rescued by PETA. So PETA is working to raise awareness about these problems, animals who have to endure bull hooks, whips, tight collars, muzzles, electric probes, and other painful tools of the trade. They want to save these animals. They also mention alternatives like circus acts who only have willing human performers, along with TV shows and films using CGI animals instead of real animals. They also say that virtual reality aquariums are captivating audiences. Moving on to category five, we have companion animals. PETA says that for every lucky dog or cat who has a comfortable home and a devoted human, countless others are struggling to survive on the streets. Many are suffering at the hands of incompetent, destitute, overwhelmed, negligent, or abusive people, or are waiting in shelters for a good home. Left to roam unsupervised by their guardians or turned away from so-called no-kill shelters, Outdoor cats have been poisoned, shot, set on fire, or trapped and drowned by cruel people. Feral cats can also be hit by cars or maimed by fan blades when they crawl under the hood of cars or into warm engine bays. PETA is a worldwide leader in working to help these animals and all other sentient beings suffering as a result of speciesism. The misguided belief that certain animals are worthy of care and compassion while others aren't, all based on arbitrary human preferences. Our hard-hitting campaigns and eye-opening investigations reach tens of millions of people annually, revealing how dogs, cats, rabbits, birds, fish, and other animal companions are in need of support and compassion from humans like you. For decades, PETA's articles, ads, and bold protests have opened people's eyes to the horrors that animals endure in puppy mills, pet stores, and squalid backyard conditions. And the public can't help but take notice. Every year in the U.S., more than 6 million lost, abandoned, or unwanted dogs, cats, rabbits, and other animals enter shelters where roughly half will be euthanized simply because of a lack of worthy adoptive homes. The animal companion overpopulation crisis can be overwhelming, but solving it starts with a no-birth nation. We must all prevent more animals from being born by spaying and neutering. Our last category, category six, is wildlife. 
PETA says that as humans continue to develop natural areas, animals' homes continue to disappear. And as animals search for food, water, shelter, and a place to raise their young, they're often deemed nuisances, pests, or said to be overpopulated. Each year, millions of them are killed because humans have taken over their living areas and don't want them. Their struggle to survive includes hunters who enjoy stalking and killing them even when they make their homes far away from cities. Hunters frequently victimize bears, coyotes, ducks, foxes, mountain lions, prairie dogs, and wolves. Anglers like to trick fish into biting on hooks that pierce their faces before pulling them out of the water and allowing them to suffocate. And trappers lay traps that slam shut on unsuspecting animals' legs so that they can kill them for being a nuisance or for their fur. By informing homeowners and businesses how to escort mice and rats outdoors humanely, we've secured countless bans on indiscriminate glue traps. We've persuaded numerous outlets to use humane options instead of poisoning animals. So again, those are the six big categories that PETA addresses. And while there are much more minute policies and minute categories, just for our purposes of summarizing PETA as a whole, I think those do a great job. Now, lastly, we are going to talk about PETA's marketing. Now, as I was reading those categories, it came up a bunch of times that they mentioned how they have elaborate and eye-turning advertisements that really get people to notice the issue. PETA has always stuck out as an organization that has very elaborate means of marketing. These can include throwing fake blood and flour at people wearing coats that may offend them, like goose coats. And they protest fur stores, people purchasing fur, and people wearing fur. A very famous protest included a naked woman, a naked pregnant woman, who was put in a cage and she was crouching on all fours and she was representing pregnant pig mothers in the food industry. So obviously a pregnant naked lady in a cage on the street is going to be something people are confused at, want to know what's going on, going to bring a lot of attention to the issue. PETA actually uses a lot of nudity to turn heads. PETA claims that people look at beautiful things and they can use that to spread their message. PETA uses a lot of either naked women or sexy type costumes to portray women as animals and either put them on a cage or put them on a leash to attract attention to the problems they're trying to address. While they do a lot of live demonstrations and your normal, you know, picket sign protest, they also run a lot of ad campaigns. These can show gruesome animal footage in cages, addressing the meat industry and laboratory conditions. One particularly controversial ad campaign was called 
I'd rather go naked than wear fur. Where women and men like Pink, Wendy Williams, Tyra Banks, even Neve from Catfish were part of this campaign. And the campaign was that they were naked. <laughs> and the wording on it would be, I'd rather go naked than wear fur. So obviously against the fur industry. These ad campaigns and other PETA demonstrations have gotten a lot of criticism over the years. Many people find it to be exploiting women and find it to be anti-women, but PETA claims that many feminists have contributed to their Go Naked ad campaigns. PETA has actually stopped this particular campaign recently, but they claim it's because they're moving on to other issues and not they're moving on because of the social societal pressure that they were getting from this campaign. PETA always has big protests, jarring images. It's just their style. And they're so well known at this point that they're the biggest animal rights organization in the world. So it seems to be working for them. In conclusion, PETA is a very polarizing organization. While they stand for animal rights and better treatment of animals, some people feel they take it too far. But in a nutshell, PETA is addressing speciesism. They no longer want us as humans to feel that we're better than other animals and use other animals for our own pleasure and our own need. Before we go, there are two things that I always like to look at when I'm analyzing a nonprofit. The first is the amount of money that actually goes into the cause, meaning how much of your donation is used for work. And I look at how much the CEO makes. PETA undergoes an independent financial audit every year. In this past year, 2020, over 82% of funding went directly to help animals, which is pretty good actually, considering how big they are, have a ton of employees. Now in regards to salary, 17% of PETA staff earn $23,000 a year to $35,000 a year. 42% earn $35,000 to $50,000, and the remaining 41% earn more than $50,000. The president, Ingrid Newkirk, earned a salary in 2019 of a little over $23,000. So if we're going to be judging PETA based on their financials, how much the CEO makes, and how much of their funding actually goes to the animals, they do pretty well, so I give them a lot of credit for that. I want to thank you guys so much for listening to this week's episode. We've had a great time getting to know PETA a little better, but next week I want to go below just the surface. I've shared a lot about what PETA is and what they stand for, but I have a lot more to say about the organization. Next week, we're really going to get into speciesism. Is it actually a thing? Is there a solution? Does PETA's logic make sense? We'll talk about that and much more on the next one. 
Like always, please subscribe to my podcast on Spotify and rate it on Apple Podcasts. Episodes are released every Monday. If you have any questions or topics you want me to discuss, send an email over to averageanimalethics at gmail.com. That's averageanimalethics at gmail.com. And the ethics is plural, so there's an S at the end of that. Talk to y'all next week. Bye-bye.